why don't we start off, Keegan, do you want to give a brief introduction to who you are and what you are working on? Yeah. So yeah, my name is Keegan. I am one of the co-founders of Start9 Labs. We basically build, in, in the context of this discussion, we build something similar to Umbral, where we are building a server product to make these various applications one-click installs. So that's kind of what I do for work. But more broadly, I'm just like, I've been a Bitcoiner for, I don't know, four-ish years now in terms of on the dev side. And then as a user for another two years beyond that, I actually got into Bitcoin dev because I took trust, don't verify a little too seriously. <laughs> and people would say things about how Bitcoin worked. And I'd ask the question, is that actually how it works? And most of the time, the answer was yes, but occasionally the answer was no. And so I just kept doing that. Now I do that for Lightning instead of the, the layer one consensus stuff. But yeah, endlessly trying to dive deeper and learn new stuff all the time. It turns out the stuff is enormously complicated. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Severin, you want to, you want to give us a, a brief intro and talk about the incredible website that you've created? Yes. Hi. So very good morning. I'm Severin. I'm the creator of Allen Router. Allen Router is a tool to help routing nodes to get insights in their node and to get insights into the whole network. That is the goal of Allen Router. I started to create Allen Router in January. Around in January, yeah. And it was just created out of the need because I wanted to start my own routing node. And I had no idea what I was doing because the Lightning Network is basically a black box if you start out with the Lightning Network. Like, you have no idea where to connect to. You have no idea what metrics matter in the Lightning Network. Then you're just there and you connect to a node and nothing happens. You don't see any traffic and uh, yeah, Allen Router is a website that I created to solve this. It's nowhere near I want it to be, but I'm still working on, I believe there are a lot of cool things coming in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Allen Router is an incredible tool. It's, wh when did you release it? The original version? I bought the domain in April. I just looked it up yesterday. <laughs> the, the first version was probably up in May or so. Yeah, there are tools coming all, all the time, as long as I have time to program on it. Yeah, it's definitely one of the, the newer tools that has fundamentally shifted my understanding of the, of the network in a really positive way. Jestifer, you want to jump in give us a brief intro to who you are and what you've built? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Let's see. I started off in Lightning just as a pleb playing with a Raspi Blitz as like a quarantine hobby really fell in love with it and was trying out some of the new apps, including a Thunderhub. So what I'm working on now is called amboss.space and it is a Lightning Network Explorer. And so I'm working with Tony IOI, or you might know him better as AP on Telegram, and he's the developer behind Thunderhub. And so we teamed up. So using my knowledge as a routing node operator and Tony's incredible work as a front-end developer to create a Lightning Network Explorer that's built for routing nodes. And we're continuing to build out tools for just to help out the Lightning ecosystem and provide good data and actionable insights for routing nodes. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting time to be in Lightning. I think, and just for the audience, what we're talking about here is Bitcoin is a layer one technology. It's sound money. It's incredibly important. And on top of it, there are what are called layer two protocols. And the Lightning Network is built on top of Bitcoin. It allows you to transmit Bitcoin essentially instantaneously and for very low fees. And so when you hear people say, oh, you can't buy a coffee with Bitcoin, totally not true. You can totally do it on the Lightning Network today. So 
That's what we're talking about just for a little more context. And everyone who's a speaker has, uh, with the exception of me, has created really amazing tools that help us build out the network further by empowering people like me, like others, like people in, in uh, which is this community that uh, we got together and started to help us all understand Lightning and learn how to be effective routing nodes in the network. Because there are three different types, or let's say very broadly speaking, there are three different types of, of users of the network. This is how I think about it. There's a person who basically wants to just whip open their phone and pay someone essentially instantaneously, basically for free, over the Lightning Network. And you can do that, anyone in the audience today, you can just go and download Wallet of Satoshi, or if you want a, a solution that lets you have full custody of your funds, you can use Breeze Wallet. So you can do that today, and you don't have to understand anything about the wiring of how it works. Then there's people who want to be like merchants, right? They're basically selling a service and they want to be able to accept Bitcoin over the Lightning Network for that reason. Now, they can use things like Breeze Wallet, which you can download, has a point of sale feature, but ultimately a lot of merchants end up running their own Lightning nodes. And then the third kind of extreme is what all of us are doing, which is not only are we participating in the Lightning Network, but we actually are running nodes that allow payments to be routed through them because that's the way the Lightning Network works. Just because I don't have a connection directly to some person, whoever they are, I can bounce payments through other nodes in order to get to them and pay them or receive from them. And when we're talking about all this stuff, I just I like to be clear that you don't need to be as, as obsessed with all these all the nitty-gritty details as we are in order to benefit from and participate in the Lightning Network. And uh, yeah, it's there's so much interesting stuff happening in it like right now. We've all been I think everyone on the stage is uh, or everyone that's speaking is part of of PlebNet, which a bunch of us are deeply excited about and as of right now, I think we're about 3% of the entire Lightning Network in terms of number of active nodes, which is really interesting. And, and as we've been building that out and, and understanding the how to be an effective routing node, the tools that y'all have built and contribute to have really helped do that. I'm curious, Jessifer, what led to you building out amboss.space? Because that's a, an essential part of my workflow as I go to whenever I'm evaluating potential peers, potential nodes to to open channels to. I check out Amboss as, a, as part of that workflow. What drove you to that and how did that come about? Sure. And hopefully we can get Severin back up on stage. Yeah. But let's see, we started off actually designing a node manager program. And we were focusing it on some specialized tools where people are managing multiple nodes. And we ran into some, I guess, some issues with licensing. If we wanted to make this thing open source, it's really hard to, to build a business around it. Like things like Ride the Lightning and Thunderhub, they're both struggling to build a, a sustainable business. And these are, are critical tools. Now, unfortunately, they, they have to be open source. And that's a difficult thing to protect. I know there's like been lots of history with Umbral following that story, not to get too deep into the weeds about it. But in going through that process and forming a company, we recognize there's a real need for good information about the Lightning Network. So I think the tool up until this point has been 1ML and, and we saw like a real need to bring all of that information that the Lightning Network provides and create a one-stop shop for people that want to find out the information as far as like routing fees and who these people are to start opening up those lines of communication so we can coordinate this Lightning Network and this market around liquidity. A big part of that is just getting people to talk to each other. And so we made the login process very simple. So 
We don't need to require you to open a channel or get any information from you, really. All you would need to do is sign a message using your node. And signing a message proves to us that you own that node. And then you would be able to customize your page and provide contact information. So you'll be able to start talking to other node operators and start coordinating liquidity and allocating it in good spots to give you a return on your investment when you're putting your savings out on the Lightning Network. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it's so interesting that there aren't any other services or any websites that aggregate that information in the same way that emboss.space does. Yeah, I guess I'm curious. I have started running a routing node in the period after Amboss was created. I'm curious how people got a sense for the fees of all of the nodes without that tool. And obviously you can, I just don't, I just don't think there is anything that like, like that out there. You can grind through it on 1ML, but it's not as good. Yeah, yeah. As a random aside, it's hilarious to me that 1ML, like their node is just, it's a garbage node. <laughs> they never balance. It doesn't seem like they ever balance their channels. Well, I don't know that they can't. Like, for consider this. Like, in many cases, a lot of these companies that have these massive nodes, like at least async, kind of quote unquote earned their one of their spots in the top. But things like One ML, they basically took the popularity of OneML.com to try to translate it into getting people to connect to their node. And it was wildly successful in that regard. A lot of people didn't know who to connect to, but they were like, hey, there's this tool that I'm using to figure out how to connect to other people. Why don't I just connect to their node? And it turns out that if you have an enormous amount of inbound liquidity and comparatively little outbound liquidity, the odds that the route that you're trying is going to succeed is astronomically low. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Actually, to give them some credit, and Keegan, you might be able to help fill in the the gaps here, but one thing that 1ML did that was really smart is actually require users to open channels because they would get a better source of information about the network as a whole. For example, Amboss currently only has two channels, and so that affects our ability to see the entire graph. Now, as our user base grows, I'm sure we'll get more channels opened. And so then we'll have better visibility onto all of the nodes that are present. But I'm sure Ren can go a ham on like the consequences of having that many channels open and having, yeah, essentially that that liquidity in those channels, in tiny channels. The thing is, though, is you don't need to have a lot of channels in order to have a complete view of the network graph. Like the gossip protocol is a peer level thing and not... Uh, channel relationship thing. So you can receive gossip messages from all sorts of peers. And you don't actually have to open a channel to a peer in order to have that peer persistently be connected to. For like my recommendation is that you should see if just adding a whole bunch more peers without adding a whole bunch more channel relationships to Amboss fixes your problem of incomplete network graphs. Yeah. How would you know if you had an incomplete network graph? You can't ever know. <laughs> nope. Great. <laughs> I just want to say, I've attempted to invite several of the people in the audience up on stage. I don't know if you've received them, but NBK, OpenOMS, CJ, Walton, KP, Richard, if you if you want to come up, request to speak, and we'd love to have you up here. Just a, uh, one input before we continue on here. It's like connecting to one ML, connecting to a node that has a lot of channels and a lot of exhausted channels. It's actually even counterproductive for you to some extent, because the pathfinding algorithm, when you send a payment, will take way longer than otherwise because it needs to try out a lot of routes that are just not working. So connecting to such a node is 
really not that good of an idea. If you are only connected to one such node, it's not a big of a problem. But if you're connected to several of such nodes, then your pathfinding is getting slower, especially when this specific node has very low fees. So the pathfinding algorithm actually tries this specific node or all paths from this specific node. Oh, interesting. Wait, so just to repeat back to make sure I'm tracking, you're saying that, that by connecting, if you open a channel to one ML, you actually decrease the efficiency of your node because every time you try to find a path through the network, you're going to basically be scanning that node's gazillion connections, even though none of them will actually be able to route. This only applies to you if you're the sender because all routes in the Lightning Network are source constructed. As a routing node, you actually have no impact on what route is chosen. So if you're just routing, it actually doesn't matter as much other than the fact that is just deadweight capital, but it won't yeah. really affect you as a router. Yeah, exactly. It's mostly when, it's when you send payments. And it really depends on how the fees are constructed. If this specific node has only one PPM fees, then yeah, have problems. It's not like that it takes 10 seconds suddenly then, but it just, it takes a little bit more. Keegan, you said it was applied to people sending payments. Would it also apply to nodes that are trying to do rebalancing? Circular, yeah, actually all rebalancing pretty much, with the exception of perhaps like a loop in, although I question the times that a loop in is ever viable. And that's just because if you are looping in to rebalance your channels, the sender in that regard is the loop server or whoever your submarine swap provider is. And so you're not exposed to it in that way. But it's not like it won't have any impact because if you're connected to something like 1ML and someone's trying to send something to you, it will still appear in the route backwards. So depending on how expensive the route is to 1ML from their point of view, they might still try it. Got it. But circular rebalances, you're both the sender and the receiver. So that's a definite yes on that front. Yeah. And just for everyone in the audience, when we're talking about rebalancing or balancing channels, what we're talking about is in the Lightning Network, you have a node that's running one of the Lightning implementations. So there's the most popular ones are LND, Eclair, C Lightning. And basically, you create a channel between yourself and another node in the network. When you do that, what that actually is, it's a two of two multi-sig contract. And well, it's a smart contract, right? So when people say, oh, there's no such thing as smart contracts on Bitcoin, they're just factually incorrect. And basically, that channel has a bunch of liquidity locked up in it. If Keegan and I open a 10 million sat channel, and we do it in a balanced fashion, there's 5 million sats on his side, 5 million sats on my side. And then basically, we can both send each other sats. But more importantly, payments can actually be routed through that channel over the network. And when that happens, if you're running a routing node, you collect a small fee for that service. And when we talk about circular rebalancing, it's where you basically send payments out through one channel, and then you receive them back in through another channel. So your net liquidity, your net balance stays the same minus fees. But what you do is you basically shift your channel balances back to being in the middle. And the reason that's important is because it allows you to route payments in both directions. Yeah, I tend to describe circular rebalancing as choosing who you want to send through, which nodes you want to send through, and which nodes you want to receive through. So typically, I like to receive through my best connected nodes. So those are the ones that have a whole bunch of channels and that are large channels. And so that makes it so that I could receive from a large portion of the network and then my sending capacity, I might choose to send through some smaller nodes. And they usually appreciate the inbound liquidity that I would be providing to them from my well-connected node. Yeah. yeah. 
Sorry, did you say that you try to send through the smaller nodes? Uh, yeah, generally. If yeah. you do that, you're creating outbound liquidity for them to you. You're creating inbound on the other side. Yeah, I'm creating inbounds liquidity for those smaller nodes. So yeah, the terminology gets a little confusing, right? Okay, so, so the inbound liquidity and the outbound liquidity is conserved across payments with an asterisk, right? Obviously, if you are charging any fees at all, you are earning slightly more in fees than you're dispensing out the other side. So technically speaking, any payment through a node is going to turn a tiny amount of its inbound liquidity into outbound liquidity. So you're not actually creating net inbound liquidity for those nodes, but you are reducing the inbound liquidity they have from you and allocating it to wherever the exit point is through that node. That's a good point. Yeah, because circular rebalances, they don't create or destroy any liquidity per se. It's really just moving it around. And so it's a question of who do I want to receive from and who do I want to send through. Yeah, good point. I'm not creating any inbound liquidity for them. I'm really making myself the route through which they could receive some payments. Just another nitpick though, like if you are sending through the small channels, that means that they used to have inbound liquidity from you. But by sending through them, your channel from their perspective is filling up with outbound liquidity. So it's actually depleting their inbound liquidity from you when you send through them. So I want to take us in a slightly different direction, if that's all right. Actually, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I'm getting a little bit lost in the weeds on what you're trying to get at, Keegan. But yeah, as a routing node, you want to position yourself to be able to receive from lots of nodes on the network. So if you are doing circular rebalancing, you are going to be shifting around other people's liquidity on who they're going to be receiving from or sending through. Yeah, this is also why if you're not a routing node, you should prefer to open your channels private to whatever routing service providers you want to use so that your liquidity isn't reallocated without your knowledge based off of the needs of the routing network as a whole. Not only that, but it also improves pathfinding for everyone else. And so unless you're like actually getting solid earnings, then it's probably not going to be worth it to open public channels when you would otherwise just be a user. Wait, can you repeat that? Yeah, okay. There are two types of channels in the lightning graph. There's the public ones, which are basically public infrastructure. That's the routing nodes are all advertising their channels so that you can route through them so that you can get your payments to their destinations without you having to have direct channel relationships with everybody with whom you transact. However, one of the consequences of that is that by and large, unless you have specific tooling you've set up for this, any request to route a payment over your channels will be satisfied or like your node will acquiesce to that request. And what that will do is it will shift the liquidity between your channels. So if you have channels that you wanted to have good inbound from and good outbound to because you've decided that's what you want, and for whatever reason, the routing nodes on the network have decided they could benefit from reallocating the liquidity the other direction, you will end up getting your liquidity moved around. And that won't necessarily be a good thing for you. It'll definitely be a good thing for whoever decided to do it, because that's why they chose to do it. And I guess the second point being is that private channels are not put into the public network graph, which means that it reduces the compute costs of pathfinding, as well as increases the reliability of pathfinding, because a lot of private channels might not have 100% well-balanced liquidity on either side. And if that's the case, then because that information isn't knowable before you send a payment, it causes more payments to fail. So 
I strongly encourage anyone who is using Lightning but not trying to basically up their routing game to open private channels. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, absolutely I mean, agree. You, interesting. You would recommend that basically people that are not trying to be... That makes sense, actually. You're saying people that are not trying to be routing nodes, they should just only open private channels. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Got it. It also improves the pathfinding algorithm that I mentioned before. So yeah. what happened right now... So the default fee for LND, for example, is 1 ppm. When you just start a new node, open a channel, it's 1 ppm. This leads to a lot of new users to have exhausted channels because it's so cheap, the liquidity is just gone instantly. But the more major thing that happens there is that people who don't really care about routing and don't really care about fees, they pollute the network with 1 ppm channels, like very low fee channels that are exhausted. And this creates this effect that the whole network, it's like really hard to find a path through the network with the pathfinding algorithm because the pathfinding algorithm tries low fee channels first, if that makes sense. Yeah, got it. Yeah, if you're creating private channels, then you won't be able to route through those and essentially get sats back when you're trying to actually pay with Lightning. Because if you're paying one direction, you might be able to create an opposing flow and then be able to charge routing fees to reset that flow of liquidity by, by providing an opposing flow. But yeah, private channels, you're totally right. Yeah, it would help you pay. Someone just DM'd me a question on Twitter asking if you would not be able to receive payments if you have private channels. That's incorrect. And that's because in the invoicing spec, there is a method to embed the private channels in the invoice such that the sender uses those as additions to the lightning graph when they try to send the payment. So it's usually very useful for last pops. And it's not tremendously well supported in all of the wallets. And I actually tweeted about this not too long ago, basically imploring every wallet dev out there to make sure that they support private channels because of the benefits of A, protecting the liquidity of the end user, and B, not polluting the channel graph with a whole bunch of channels that are not routable. Yeah, yeah, that is super important. It's really interesting as I've got further and further down the rabbit hole, understanding the information that is stored locally by a node as it tries to basically send payments through the various routes. I'm really fascinated by the, the kind of ranking system or the, the penalties that are applied for failed payments and how that affects the ability to accept routes in the future or to receive routes in the future. Alex, I see you're on the stage. You want to give us like a brief introduction of, of who you are and all the cool shit that you've established? You can say no, of course. Oh. Hi, yeah, I'm Alex Bosworth. Uh, I work at Lightning Labs. We work on LND and some liquidity products for routing or receiving payments like Lightning Loop. I'm going <laughs> to, you're selling yourself short, my friend. Alex is the creator of the Boss Score, which is, I think, is the first system for basically trying to provide visibility into what makes a good routing node in the Lightning Network versus a bad one. And it's super important because by having these ranking systems that allow us to, to categorize our own nodes as effective or ineffective routing nodes, it gives us more clarity around how to improve those metrics and those features, which is also something that Severin has put a lot of effort into. And the terminal web debugger that he's created is a huge step in that direction. It gives us a lot more visibility into how to improve our nodes. Yeah, it, it was designed from the opposite perspective, the perspective of the person who's trying to join the network. 
and they need the routing nodes. And the idea is to decentralize the network. In order to decentralize the network, we need somebody who joins the network to have a bootstrap. Like these nodes are worth your time to consider. Like how when you join the Bitcoin network, you reach out to these DNS peers and the, the DNS seed tell you about some reasonable Bitcoin nodes that you can connect to, you can find, and they're going to give you addresses of other Bitcoin nodes. And after a while, you'll develop your own set of peers. So that was the idea is we don't want the Lightning Network to just be everybody connects to the 10 big routing nodes. We want this to be like a decentralized network where you have a, a bunch of choices. If one node goes offline, it's fine. You have other peers. So that's the idea is establishing that seed list. Yeah, got it. Did you create the boss score as a way for you personally initially to evaluate what were good nodes or was the intention basically to provide visibility for other people? That project was done in the context of the Lightning Labs mobile app. So the mobile app, we wanted to do it all as far as make super easy to use accessible app for everybody to just join the Lightning Network. And that was like my high level goal, which is, okay, you downloaded this app and how do we make you have a good experience? without running our own routing node. Got it. One thing that somebody else said a minute ago that kind of struck me is in one of our previous conversations, Alex, you'd mentioned, I believe it was you, the excitement around Rust Lightning, which is like another implementation that I think is, I'm actually unclear on what stage of development it's in, but you were saying specifically the ability to create more nuanced uh, custom routing strategies was something that that you were excited about. And just a second ago, we were talking about the effect of connecting to 1ML and, and how that might affect the way your own node and calculated routes. How long before we're able to implement those types of customized routing algorithms so that we can, as an individual, basically say, okay, avoid these types of nodes in the future? And do you um, think that's a good thing? Yeah, I think the more tooling we have, the more libraries we have, the easier it is to like try out these different ideas and execute them. Like on my node, I already have custom strategies. I have a list of nodes that I blacklist from all my routes. And I have like tooling to help me develop what that list looks Right now, I pick all those nodes manually, but that could easily be dynamically done. And then LND also has a new API in 0.13 that allows you to influence the mission control. The mission control is what does the pathfinding logic. So that's like an area of just experimentation. It's also worth noting that LND and Rust Lightning will dump the entire channel graph to you if you ask for it through one of the APIs, and then you can do your own pathfinding outside of the LND process. Or Rust Lightning is a library, not an actual kind of node implementation. But yeah, the point question. being that if you dump the graph, you can write your own custom pathfinding logic and then send directly to a route. And LND has APIs for that too. Oh, interesting. Alex, is that what Balance of Satoshi's does? Is it already implementing its own like its I own do. customized routing? Oh. I can't hear you. I don't know if you're speaking, Alex. Oh, man. Can anyone else? I don't know if it's my phone or this is... He's back I, on I, as a listener now. Ah, okay. Yeah, one of the issues of uh, Twitter Spaces is quite interesting. And uh, it tends to boot people and do weird shit. So let me find Alex again and bring him back up. But go ahead. What somebody was going to say something. I think it was Alex, but I think you know just what we were talking about is like the ability to do pathfinding in a more custom way rather than leaving it up to the various implementations. And I think you were asking about what is the exciting thing about Rust Lightning. And so one of the things that Rust Lightning offers is an entire Lightning implementation in library form. So right now, if you want to get at some of the more raw functionality within these node implementations, you have a few options. LND has a gRPC API. And that gRPC API is much richer than what LNCLI gives you and what the config allows you to specify. 
but it necessarily requires you to write software that is in another process. There's a similar dynamic in C Lightning where their plugin infrastructure, as opposed to having a gRPC API, the request responses happen over standard input, standard output. And so you can write your own plugins that can interact with C Lightning. But what's interesting about Rust Lightning is that it's all in the same process. And so you can get it down to a very low footprint. One of the consequences, and Matt Corolla was very stringent about the way that Rust Lightning was set up, where it basically has no dependencies, which means that the actual binary footprint is actually fairly small. And I just heard of a project yesterday that's actually working on compiling Rust Lightning to WASM and embedding an entire Lightning node straight in the browser. And so we'll see how that pans out in practice. I have numerous questions about how that's actually going to work, but it's definitely one of the cooler aspects. So does this mean that the Docker container for Rust Lightning would be really compact? I, I don't actually know because for the Docker container, again, Rust Lightning is a library primarily, but they do have a tutorial where you can basically build your own Lightning node in five or six lines of code using that library. And so if you're talking about what it would take to build your own Lightning using the Rust Lightning library and then Dockerizing that, in general, Rust binary sizes are pretty good because there's no runtime like there is in something like Go. But I don't know how it would compare to something like C Lightning. The reason I ask is because someone is inevitably going to roll out a Lightning node package, which is containerized. Like in Umbral, if you install uh, more than a couple apps and you have only four gigs of RAM, which most nodes do, they can start to crawl. And uh, I believe that it can actually lead to some failures uh, such as Bitcoin D failing health checks. And if three of them fail in a row, it can do an emergency shutdown. I believe that's what happened to my node a couple of days ago. So I'm very concerned about the Docker container size of some of these apps and uh, Lightning daemon itself. Keep in mind that the container size is completely different than the in-memory occupancy, right? The container size doesn't actually have to fit all the way in memory because what Docker is doing is it's setting up a file system overlay. Obviously, any app that's going to have a huge Docker image footprint size is likely to have a high memory footprint, but that's purely based off of correlation of what I would describe as like carelessness by the developers and less so about some intrinsic link between the two. I had a question if Alex is able to talk. I think he's a speaker now. Hey, Alex, when can we have a truly pruned node-based Lightning LND implementation? If you update to 0.13.1, it should allow for pruned Bitcoin D. It works by getting the blocks from the peers directly when they're needed. It does seem to still be buggy, though, Alex. I was talking to Wilmer about this last week. We deployed 0.13 to the embassy. 0.13.0. So I don't know if this was fixed in 0.13.1 that came out today. But when we deployed 0.13.0 and used the LND native pruned node support, it caused nodes to periodically go offline and then not be able to come back. And then when we switched back to our sort of block fetching proxy that we had been using prior to 0.13, it seems to fix it. Now, I don't have any better evidence than that, and I am working with Wilmer to try to like nail it down, but you might want to be careful using LND's pruned node support watching yeah. closely. It is a brand new feature, so your mileage may vary. The other thing I try to change is there's a caching system in it, so it's not going to get every block from every peer. It's going to collect the blocks in the near time frame that it might need. And then also, you can adjust your prune setting to say, oh, I want to prune everything, or I want to prune just the last two weeks or the last month. Like in some scenarios, it might be more reliable than others. Yeah, it's a new feature that hasn't been in the wild before. Yeah, there might be bugs. Thanks. 
All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up, and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoiners like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about the Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium market intelligence newsletter. This is a no-fluff, hard-hitting, incredible newsletter going deep into the market, helping you understand what's happening with derivatives, what's happening on-chain, what's happening in macro, what's happening with the narrative, and what's happening with the tech. My man, Dylan LeClaire, is an absolute savant. He is making his name known in the Bitcoin community, getting shout-outs left and right, getting on podcasts left and right, and him and his team are bringing you everything that you need to know about Bitcoin. You don't even have to be on Bitcoin Twitter. You can ignore every other newsletter. This is the newsletter to rule them all. Go over to members.bitcoinmagazine.com. Sign up today. And if you use promo code MACRO, you get a full month for free. You have nothing to lose. What are you waiting for? Sign up, see the incredible work that Dylan and his team are putting out. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. You don't pay a dime. But if you do, it's going to be well worth the sats in investment in understanding Bitcoin and gaining the confidence to continue to invest in Bitcoin and making the right moves around Bitcoin. And it's going to be well worth every single Satoshi. Uh, again, can't recommend it enough. That is members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code macro. Do it today. So uh, just to be clear, Rust Lightning. Is the idea that you would run Bitcoin Core, for example, LND, and then you'd use Rust Lightning as the library? Rust Lightning would substitute for LND in that particular case. The primary difference, and this is, I'm taking a lot of this from their like documentation, and like I had a, a couple of conversations with Matt Corolo about it, but the thing that they're going for is that like the various node implementations make a lot of decisions with respect to how to store certain pieces of data and how the Lightning node fits into some broader architecture. And by busting up 
what makes up a lightning node into its various subsystems and making those a bit, giving you the ability to control those from inside of another process. It just gives you a lot tighter level control. By and large, it's not as well developed from a like end user perspective as something like LND is or like even see lightning. But yeah, as a developer, if you find that the other node implementations are not serving your needs, either due to being like heavy or awkward to deploy, or you need just like lower level access to the actual individual protocol features, then Rust Lightning, I think, has an opportunity to serve your needs better in that way. But it is in a comparatively earlier. How long, I'm so curious, how long before the people that are, before all of you, start like really playing around with it? What needs to happen before you feel comfortable doing so and implementing it in your own tools? Rust Lightning? Yeah. I have to hate Rust less. <laughs> that seems like a you problem. <laughs> it is. Got it. Okay. Alex, how much have you built on top of balances? Do you use balance of Satoshis as the intermediate layer between most of the stuff that you do on the Lightning Network? So I use that for my own nodes, and I use that helping to manage like the Lightning Loop service and trying out different things. I have various testnet nodes, test nodes. It's both like what I use to manage nodes and then also to prototype different ideas, to try different things out. And it's built on top of the like my general Lightning library that I've been working with since I originally built Yalts.org. So it's built on that code base. Got it. How often do you use LNCLI directly versus the tools that you've built on top of it? Generally, if LNCLI does what I want it to do, I'm not going to replace it with a new command. Although, Mouseless Satoshis does have a new command, which we'll just call basically LNCLI. So you can use it that way. But generally, I build the commands more for automating common tasks, whereas LNCLI is a great way to like access the API directly. Yeah, yeah. I have one more question for you, and then I want to open up a, a more kind of like open dialogue between everybody that's currently a speaker. So we can just kind of like riff and go into whatever we want. So one of the things that was really interesting to me that, I guess, does the fact that C Lightning, as I understand it, probing in the way that a terminal web uses a less, not possible anymore, how does that affect the network and things like terminal web and the tools that you're working on? Is that a good thing or a bad thing in your mind? I miss when it made probing impossible. What happened? So like AsyncQ, right, on like terminal web, like terminal.lightning.engineering, AsyncQ was like the number one node forever, basically. And then very recently, my understanding is that the newest implementation of C Lightning made it so that probes can no longer be used to basically determine the channel balance. Do you mean Eclair? I'm sorry, wait, is it Eclair? It's not a C Lightning? Async no, it's is almost certainly using Eclair instead of Eclair. Okay, I apologize. Not C Lightning, Eclair. So I'm going to jump in for a moment here because I believe he could shift connection problems. So what Eclair did is basically Eclair made, the, I believe, the payment sequence as a requirement. This, as far as I know, disables key sent and also disables probes. And what happened with async or Ekink, or I don't know how to pronounce this note, it fell completely off the terminal score. And that is because terminal score, to some extent, uses probing to determine the health of a node. I'm not working on terminal web, so I can't get into exactly what happened there. Like, I don't know. But I don't think that you can necessarily make probing impossible, but you, like, cause problems for it, for sure. And also, the terminal web is not probing your balances or anything. Like, that's not part of how it works. I think, actually, Async was deliberately removed from the original scoring list because it was causing problems for probing and maybe they don't want to be probed. 
So they were rejected. So it was removed because it wasn't working. And I think you can make problems for people who want to run probes, but you can't really categorically stop probing. You can just send a signal that you don't want to be probed. Oh, wow. Wait, so Severin, in the other chat, my understanding was that we'd come to the conclusion that Eclair no longer provided that information, but it sounds like that's not the case. Not sure if I understand your question correctly. Can you repeat it again? Yeah, I don't know if it was in the beta group or in the uh, advanced group, but I thought we had come to the conclusion that the newest version of Eclair basically made it not possible to reliably probe channels as yes. a default. And it sounds like yeah. what Alex is saying is that's actually not the case. It's just... So if you probe according to the probing research paper that came out like two years ago or so, if you do it like this, then it's not possible anymore. They will return and a different error message and yeah it doesn't work but you can possibly get around with it making one or two adjustments to the probing algorithm and then it should work again but the standard probing doesn't work anymore with eclair okay got it i don't really think that's the reason because they were actually upset that they weren't on the list and they asked to be included they asked for the exemption to be removed so I think probably the reason that they're not on is unrelated to any kind of probing changes. Alex, so what I saw on the Eclair GitHub is literally they uh, merged some code that makes the payment secret and the requirement. And like it's just coincidentally at the same time, then I think fell out of the terminal score. But it doesn't need to be. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. One question that's coming up for me is several in our conversations We've talked about a really responsible use of probing. And I'm curious, as probing grows and as more tools are built around it, how do you folks feel about or how will the network respond in response to a whole bunch of probes happening across the network or potentially irresponsible use of of probing that might not protect privacy or that might be abusing individual nodes' resources? Good question. Alex, I know we've talked before about how the network is resilient. How do you see nodes responding to excessive probing? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily even say probing. It's just what happens if you make a lot of requests. Like what if you go to a web page and you hit it a billion times and you get everybody to hit it a billion times? There's like a level of abuse even in regular things that people are expected to do. I think that's like a super important question for the patterns of protocol deal with this scenario. And it conflicts with the goal of also making it so that you don't know who's responsible for the traffic. Because it's not like you can just put a rate limit on an IP. You are getting the traffic from somewhere and you don't know where it's coming from. So if you rate limit it, you're just rate limiting everybody. And that actually makes the problem worse because now you've just increased the bang for the buck of doing an abuse. You basically shut off the node. I think there are a lot of solutions for how this could be solved, but it does need to be prioritized. Like. People need to be talking about this more maybe than other things that they're working on adding to the spec that are not like thinking about how to harden the network. Can you shed some light more on actually how probes work? Is it done through the onion packet? Probing is just a very generic way to describe doing a payment that maybe doesn't succeed. So the simple probe, if you use my tool for probing, all it's going to do is going to send the payment to the destination. But instead of the hash, the H and HDLC the hash, it's going to send random data. So the nodes along the path, they won't know that's not the correct hash. So they'll still forward it. 
But then when it gets to the end, the end will reject it and say, that didn't work for me. That's one type of probing. That's the most simple type of probing. And it can be useful when you're making a real payment. So a lot of wallets actually do a probe before they pay, including like the Lightning Loop service. Before we actually do a swap, we do a probe just to test the route to see is the route going to work for us. Once we know that the route is going to work for us, then we send along a real payment. So it's not like it's just information gathering for information gathering's sake. It can be part of the regular payment flow. And just to clarify here, so what happens is that the onion packet is sent with like basically a full route or a, a candidate route to the destination. But at the very end, the payment hash, the HTLC being offered to the final hop, the recipient is not associated with a payment hash that they've generated. And so they reject the HTLC and then it, the HTLCs get rejected all the way back to the source. So you can see, okay, my payment made it along this path. So if I want to use that path again, there's a high chance it's going to work. And there's also the payment, like you were saying before, that there's a payment nonce included. So when you generate a payment request in there, there's a random number that is encrypted in that payment that you make. And actually, if you use my probing tool and you use it with a, like a, a payment request, it will still include that nonce. It might even be compatible with the way that Async is blocking probing because it signals that you have knowledge of the payment request. But that's just one way to probe. Another way to probe is you can pay past the point that you want to pay. So that makes it harder to block it. How do you know if you're a routing node? How do you know that the payment is a probe versus just like paying to one of your peers? So that's how probing is like a general concept. If I'm just gathering information that was going to help me to do something. Okay, got it. So the statement that I had made that basically Claire is blocking probing, totally incorrect. I'm still a little bit unclear on exactly... Well, they were always causing problems for probing. So that's why mm. they were not originally included in what I worked on. Like they weren't sending back the error, which was, I don't know about this payment. So they always worked that way. Interesting. But okay, so then they did update their node and they also asked to be included in the scores. So they were included for a while, but I don't know why they fell out. Okay, got it. So just to be clear, my assertion earlier that running the newest version of a Claire has anything to do with this was incorrect. Is that right? It's a per node. It might be correct. I really don't know. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Because one of the things that's been interesting in Plebnet is that we've noticed that a ton of us have basically jumped hundreds and hundreds of scores up on like Terminal Web. And I had thought that was because the newest version changed something, but... It might change things. And I just don't know because I'm not working on the current version. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Severin, anything else that you would add to that? No, it's actually a very good explanation of Alex on uh, how probing works. There are ways around it, even if they make the payment secret mandatory, like Eclair did. I believe it has to do with the recent merge request I sent this merge. Alex has sent you the merge request in the Lightning Labs Maslack group. You can have a look. They explicitly say we can safely make it mandatory which closest probing attack vectors in the merge request, but it actually doesn't prevent probing if you can get around it. Yeah, the routing one hot pass basically kills it. And just to be clear, the routing one hot pass is where you you're sending a probe to one farther than the node you're actually interested in, or is that you're sending a payment one hop farther than the node you're actually interested in? They're not materially different, but yeah, it's mostly, it's, you're offering an HTLC that never resolves. Got it. Oh, that's so fascinating. Okay. One thing that you said, Alex, a second ago, is that Terminal Web does not use probing to determine what constitutes a good peer? It doesn't use balance probing, so it's not like figuring out everybody balances. As far as I know, like that's not how it works at all. What do you think? I'm not sure about this because when you have a look at the JSON file that 
the terminal web score loads in the background, then there is one field that clearly states that you need to have like minimal routable tokens of 1 million Satoshi. And it clearly states minimal routable tokens. With my debugging effort on a terminal score debugger on my website, ownrouter.app, there is a pattern that you must have, you must have 1 million routable tokens, but the pattern is not clear. There are some exceptions and I cannot 100% state that they do probing. They do something in this direction, but I don't know what they exactly do. But it does do probing. So I'm not saying it doesn't do probing. I'm saying it doesn't do like the type of probing where it narrows in on what your balance is from hour to hour or day to day. That's as far as I know, it doesn't do anything like that. It just does more of the information gathering probing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big thing. Actually, like a lot of people connect probing with private being privacy invading. And I disagree there if you don't really determine the balance of the channel. If you just check, hey, would this payment go through, which happens all the time in the network by just trying to find a path, I don't believe this is privacy invading, to be honest. So what you could do for probing is just say, hey, can you route this 1 million sat payment? Oh, no, you can't. How about a 500,000 Satoshi payment? Oh, you can. How about and just narrow in, how about a, like a 750,000 sat? And you can bring down that resolution on exactly what someone's balance is. But instead of doing the balance probing, you don't need that type of resolution. You're just curious, what can you route generally a large payment? Yeah, and also you can get the same information just by making regular payments on the network because every time you make a payment, you're routing through lots and lots of different nodes. So even if you're just, just making regular payments, you're already gathering that data of like who can forward for you. Yeah, this is another reason that you might want to make your channels private if you're not trying to be a router is because you don't want someone to be able to zero in on the balance of your channels through a series of a binary search on the probing whether or not you can route a payment. Yeah, can't you create the same effect though by, I guess you could still force it, but basically by setting the max HTLC size. What if you had like a 16 million SAT channel and then you just set the max HTLC to like 100? They can also stack HTLC. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can have up to 480 something HTLCs in a channel at once. Yep, 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 fair. One thing that we didn't talk about is private channels in parallel with public channels. And I know OpenOMS and Alex have talked about this before. And that's been fascinating because what I was gathering was that you could actually use this private channel for routing in parallel with a public channel. And so that liquidity in the private channel could actually be used for routing if you have them set up in parallel. Yeah, another thing that I know or I have heard of people doing, and I played around with a little bit myself, is basically having public channels and then private channels for rebalancing, which I think is misrelated. Or is that are you saying something differently? Oh, I think earlier we were saying that like private channels couldn't be used for routing, but I was adding a little bit of nuance into it because I think it's an exciting opportunity for people to maybe improve their privacy or actually yeah, make this this probing question a little bit more difficult to get a handle on and Maybe clean up your OPSEC a little bit. Wait. Also, if you're a routing node, you might not want to advertise the nodes that you're connected to or how much you're connected because you're leaking information to your competitors about how much that they should sign to the destination. And also think like the private channel mix could be interesting 
right now, a channel and like a UTXO are the one-to-one mapping. But in the future, it could be that you could just have your channels be cold wallet UTXOs that are not actually used for the channel. They're just like a marker, a placeholder that says, I can route up to this amount, keep them on your cold wallet. And then you can make private channels to manage how much actual hot wallet liquidity you want to have on your node. You can wait, wait, tear wait, that wait. down and raise it up. Wait, Alex, can you elaborate on that? I, I don't quite understand. You're saying you could use UTXOs that you couldn't actually sign because you'd have it from the, on it. Right. From the perspective of the network, it doesn't know if the coin that you've referenced in your channel is actually being used for the channel at all. It's just a pointer. And the cost of the pointer is just to sign a multi-sig with that UTXO. It's conceivable that you could just have that UTXO actually be living on your cold wallet. You don't actually have those funds on your node. And even the, the funds could actually not even be your own funds. You could pay somebody else to create that pointer for you. And once you had that, then you would be able to manage your actual liquidity totally privately by making private channels that just follow along the same path. And whenever you receive a new HTLC, you just send it along the private channel instead of the public channel that the sender referred to. Whoa, wait, you're blowing my mind. Is that something that people are doing today? We, we, we would also have no way to know. But I don't know of an easy way to, to accomplish it, it's like using the current tool. Like well, when you say that people might use these things as pointers, the, the thing that's jumping out of my mind right now is that it's not clear why someone would want to do this. Because if the UTXOs are small, for instance, right, the, the idea that some people might want to do, I think I've, I've heard the practice called shadow routing, where they might like open a 10 million sat public channel and have a 100 million sat private channel. And at least until amps are a little bit more widely used, that basically limits the amount you can route over that link to 10 million at a given point, but you're hiding the private liquidity or you're hiding the lion's share of the liquidity in the private channel. However, that doesn't still change your hot wallet exposure as a result. It might not leak the information that you have that much available. And if you have the reverse scenario where the public channel appears, even though it might not belong to you or something like that, appears much larger than a smaller private channel, I feel like that creates even more problems. Yeah, this is a theoretical solution. But I think that it addresses one of the issues with having shadow routing channels, which is that you limit yourself and what you can forward, and you're like turning away customers. So if you have a public channel that's 10 million, but then you decide, oh, I want my shadow channel to have 100 million, the people who are sending, they don't know that you have 100 million. So those 100 million sends are going to go to somebody else, and you're going to lose that revenue. Whereas if you had a, like one of these pointer UTXOs, you could set that to be 100 million, but then only commit 10 million. And then if you decide you want to go up, then you could add more shadow channels and your pointer will still remain valid. You'd probably have to splice them because, well, link level No, no are- because it, it really doesn't matter. Like LND will already switch your forward to the channel that has liquidity, even if you specified a different channel. So the sender doesn't need to know about it because LND will just automatically switch it over to the one that, that does exist. Will it do it over parallel channels as well? Yeah, that's the only time it will do it. So if you have like multiple channels with your peer, and one of them is depleted and the other one isn't, but the sender didn't know that, so they specified the one that was depleted, LND will automatically switch it over to the one that wasn't depleted. Yeah, sorry, what I meant is that if you advertise 100 million, but you used to have 10 million and you said you wanted to up it, and so you open up a second private channel with 20 million, you're still limited to 20 million in a single shot. You yeah, sure. Can't, you, yeah. Until link level amps have been, like, are, are those standardized? No, there's no link level amp like implementation that I know of. But, and yeah, you, the problem is really whether your peer isn't going to respect that you have this pointer. They're going to say, I need to have the channel. I need to have those funds like in the hot wallet. 
It just gives you the flexibility to grow if you want it to grow. Yeah. This is fascinating dialogue. I'm also curious if I can ask another question, P. Stop me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, please. The, the goal of this is basically to have an interesting conversation. So anyone who's a speaker, like, please feel free to, to dive in and ask questions. As- yeah. Another thing that comes up is how do you think the Lightning Network will change with Taproot getting activated? Do you expect that it'll be easier or more difficult to find routes? Or how do you see it playing out as more tools become available with this top fork? I don't actually anticipate it making anything more. I I guess I don't know about... It'll depend on whether the implementations can get an uptake of some sort of channel point that is taproot enabled quickly, because it does require a spec change. Because in one of the bolts, I think bolt three, it actually specifies the entire transaction and script formats. And there's all the implementations have to use that in order to be able to enforce the punishment schemes. And so insofar as it takes a long time to get that implemented, and there's going to be this heterogeneity between the network, HTTP2 came out forever ago, and we still use HTTP1 like on half the internet. So it might take a while in order to be able to use taproot channels with most of the peers on the network, but I don't think it should impact routing all that much, or as in like constructing a route to the destination. Okay, interesting. How do you think that sidecar channels will affect the topology or the way that the Lightning Network is used? I wish I understood sidecar channels better. That's a pool product, is that right? Where you're essentially providing inbound liquidity to a new entrant to the Lightning Network for a fee and making that available to the pool auction. Is that right? Please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure. Does Elizabeth want to come up? I I sent her an invite, but she's refusing, which I'm I'm deeply offended by. No, I'm kidding. Elizabeth, you want to come up and give us your thoughts? She may be otherwise occupied. I mean, I can try to take a stab at it. The way that I understand sidecar channels right now is that it just requires that the person purchasing the channel lease does not have to be the one who receives the inbound liquidity from the channel lease. And I think that that's the only difference. And what that would mean is that it basically just functions as a normal channel, but it doesn't require someone to have Bitcoin loaded up into a bunch of different wallets to begin with. Okay, so under that, then established nodes would be able to participate in pool and help broker deals for liquidity for new nodes. Because I think that's one of the biggest problems is that when people start up a node, they're like, how in the world do I get inbound liquidity so that I can receive payments or become a routing node? And like beyond sidecar channels, it sounds like there's a whole bunch of tools that are emerging, Lightning Network plus for these organized rings. I've been really impressed with it. You're able to construct these ring routes in a matter of hours instead of trying to coordinate these liquidity rings just manually through yeah, messaging. I can, yeah, I can say like the <laughs> trying to, to participate in the rings of fire is a very onerous process. It just takes days and days and then people change their fee structure or they can't actually route. We found it much more effective in, in PlebNet to basically just organize those directly between people. The problem, of course, is that is very trusted. It requires trust. And the reason that I got super interested in the balance of Satoshi's dual-funded channel option is because it is trustless, which is super interesting. I didn't realize that it was possible to implement that through Keysend on LND, but I certainly use that a lot these days. Yeah, I I think that I'd be interested in making a group version of that. Oh my gosh, uh, you should do that. I think there's a lot of interesting angles to approach it, like making it easy, making it so that you're not relying on somebody running some kind of script that you just say, I want to join this group. And then the group just happens. Like 
that's a new phenomenon. So like I never really thought about it before, but mm-hmm. I've been thinking about expanding the way that the balance channel works to make it like amenable to groups. And that was like the impetus behind the balance channel is like I saw people who were like opening a channel and then they were trusting the other person to send them half the money back. And I thought, yeah. oh, we have the technology here that you don't have to do that. So I think the same applies also to the group channels. But the group channels themselves have also been like progressing. So it's not as bad as it was before with this kind of like trust model. But I think it could be better than what we have now. Oh, it absolutely could. I love the idea of being able to, as you said, have these group architectures. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is in the last three months, even the tools that are available that Severin has built out, that you built out, has just exploded. And as a person who has has had a Lightning Node for a long time, but has not actually been able to figure out how to participate effectively in the Lightning Network and how to basically make strategic decisions about which nodes I, I connect to, I just feel like we're in this like magical time when the tooling is just being built out in front of us and we're able to participate in that process. And one of the things that I have been really excited about is tools that allow one to effectively, like LN Node Insight by a small world, like that's another tool I was trying to get him to join, but he's in a different country. And so the timing was off. But essentially, like there is a channel simulator that he's built out that allows you to basically go in, you put your node in, and then you can plug in any other node and simulate like what how it will affect your centrality, which of course is only one aspect of being an effective routing node. But there's a real space, there's a real need right now for tools that allow people who are non-software engineers to be able to intuitively understand or build mental models around like how routing works and how rebalancing works. And I think that's the thing that is so desperately needed right now. And as we all put effort into building up the number of, of high quality nodes in the Lightning Network, and for example, being able to visually or to have a tool that would display the entire Lightning Network and then basically use a, a slightly different kind of force directed graph that would show like communities and then basically have you be able to visually see in real time or maybe after the fact how routes are being constructed. Even just a graph that's on like lnrouter.app slash graph that then you could plug in and basically demo. You could see in after the fact, like exactly the route that was taken through the network. That kind of stuff is so valuable for people who are just trying to wrap their heads around how the Lightning Network works. I love all the visualizers popping up, including the one on Ellen Router, as well as uh, Cheese Robot. I think one of my favorite things just like at Amboss is just watching the loop node and watching all of the people compete with fee rates. Just since they can see the actual fee rates that other people are charging, they're now actively undercutting each other. And then they've taken to changing their aliases to send passive aggressive notes or whatever to say, oh, you undercut me. I'm undercutting you now. (laughs) And using that as a broadcast communication method is very entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's it's great for the whole concept of the lightning, that the capital is going to be where you want it to be. I wouldn't take that for granted. You're a service and then the people who are are just going to appear to offer you inbound liquidity when you need it. But Loop is like the proof point that that does work, that if there's like a demand that's a sustained demand, there's going to be a marketplace for people to come and supply that, that inbound liquidity. And it's going to be like a very vibrant marketplace where people are going to figure out how much this is costing me, how much can I earn, can I do better than the other guy. So if we scale this network up to 100x, this is like a market process that can just work. Yeah, the hard part is actually just discovering where those reliable demand points are. Because yeah, sort of- I, it didn't happen overnight. The original loop node, that was some of me just begging people, Would, do you want to open channels? Then it takes time for people to find out about this. 
So that's on both sides of the equation. If you're somebody who is starting a new node, like if you want inbound liquidity, and you were talking about just starting only private channels, that's one reason that you wouldn't want to do only private channels, because that kind of sacrifices that organic inbound liquidity with people like knowing that, oh, if I sent to you, and there's also a marketplace even within the peering. If I open a channel to loop, and it's at a low fee rate, but there's somebody else at a higher fee rate, the people at the higher fee rate can buy the liquidity from the people at the lower fee rate. So that creates a marketplace just through rebalancing. And you don't really get that unless you have public channels and unless you're an established node in the network. Now with parallel channels, so I guess a higher price node might think that they might be able to rebalance and eliminate some underpriced nodes or some lower priced nodes they might find themselves that there's actually a whole lot more liquidity than they were prepared for. Also, you're creating your own demise to some degree. So let's say you're a high fee node and you peer with loop. And then you look at the low fee nodes and you say, I'll buy all of their liquidity out. So you can do that, but you're also like giving them an incentive to get new inbound liquidity to create new channels. This is like a market in the sense that you're predicting the future. What are they going to do? What's going to be the demand in the future? And then that's what's determining the price of doing a loop in the routing sphere. Fascinating. I love how this is evolving so quickly. Yeah, this is an amazing time to be enlightening. Yeah, I wonder, does anyone on, that is a speaker on stage have questions for anyone else on stage? What are the things that you're currently thinking about that might be useful to get input on? I have a question to Alex or everybody else. I was tweeting a lot about Tor recently, and it seems like a lot of Tor notes have trouble staying up, trouble having their channels being active and not disabled. I'm a little bit confused. I'm not sure now if it is Tor or if Tor is the problem. Open Noms also replied to my tweet there, or if it is actually an issue with LND at the moment that a lot of Tor nodes are having issues. There is an LND issue that should be fixed in today's 0.13.1 release. I guess it was, was it yesterday. That, no, it should be. The problem is, if you're a Tor node and you're connected to a node on ClearNet and the ClearNet node changes its IP, the Tor node will not automatically reconnect to the Clear node, new ClearNode IP. So it will just stay disconnected forever and the channel will be disabled. Unless you run like a reconnect script periodically, it won't be figuring that out. But that issue has been fixed today. And there is also like a greater issue, which is that Tor itself as a network is not 100% reliable. There's a lot of problems with Tor. so that manifests itself as you just lose the ability to forward to your peers. Yeah, there were significant problems earlier this year with consensus process in the Tor hidden service directories, which is how the dot onions know where they're routing. And first of all, V2 addresses on Tor have been deprecated. And so it's recommended that you use V3s to begin with. And if you did use a V3, you were probably going to be affected by this. It's happened sporadically. There was a patch that the Tor team released to deal with it, but it isn't widely available on a lot of the sort of home node implementations because the patch that they deployed was only available for ARM v8. It never actually got backpropagated to ARM v7, and a significant number of the node implementations run off of operating systems that require 32-bit or ARM v7. Great, thanks. This is insightful. Bitcoiners, I am so excited to tell you about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. 
You guys, Bitcoin 2021 was absolutely a smash hit success. It was over 13,000 Bitcoiners coming together, breaking the barriers on who can come together and celebrate freedom, celebrate Bitcoin, and the energy was absolutely electric. Unfortunately, it was just oversubscribed. There's just people flowing out everywhere. And this year we are learning, we are making the conference bigger and better. We are moving over to the Miami Beach Convention Center, and we are going to be throwing a massive four-day festival for Bitcoin, celebrating Bitcoin, bringing together the greatest minds in Bitcoin and the greatest businesses in Bitcoin. And lastly, the culture of Bitcoin all together. We have a four-day extravaganza planned for you guys for Bitcoin 2022. Day one is going to be industry day. It is a day where you can buy a special ticket in order to just mingle and make business deals happen. Day two and three is going to be a full-blown Bitcoin conference. This is our main conference. This is going to be on April 7th and 8th. And then lastly, we have the Sound Music Festival day four. Imagine going to Coachella, but for Bitcoin. There's going to be very few talks. It's going to be all about the culture of Bitcoin. It's going to be all about hanging with your fellow plebs. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be Bitcoin musicians, Bitcoin artists, and all your favorite Bitcoiners and just an amazing environment to party and just see it all, soak it all in, and to get people to realize that a Bitcoin world, a world filled with Bitcoin people doing Bitcoin things is the world that they want to live in. That's what Bitcoin 2022 is all about. That is what the Bitcoin conference is all about. That's what Bitcoin Magazine is all about. So it is going to be a celebration of Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners, and this amazing movement that is going to make the world a better place. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Learn more about the Bitcoin conference. Learn more about all the amazing things that are happening in Miami around the Bitcoin conference and buy your tickets. And guess what? If you buy your tickets with Bitcoin, you save $100 on all the tickets and $1,000 on the whale pass. So if you want the VIP pass, the big kahuna, if you buy with Bitcoin, you save $1,000. That's a lot of stats. So Go and do it right now today. Don't wait. Prices are only going up. This is going to be a can't miss event. Bitcoiners, let's take a break from the content. And I want to tell you about Coolbix. Coolbix is an awesome Bitcoin hardware wallet that's been around for a really long time. They are building an amazing Bitcoin wallet called the Cool Wallet Pro. The Cool Wallet Pro is state of the art. Bitcoin hardware wallet technology. Its form factor is like a credit card. You can put it into your wallet and it is designed to go with you on the go. So that way, even when you're on the go, you can have the benefit of a two-factor hardware wallet design when you're trying to spend your Bitcoin. So you can have your Bitcoin wallet UX on your phone and make it really easy to scan, decide what you want to do. But then you sign with a cool bit X, which is in your back pocket. It is tamper proof. It is waterproof. It is flexible. It has an awesome secure element in it. And it is a really awesome way in order to have some more flexibility, yet security when you're taking your Bitcoin on the go. I personally am a fan of this idea of making Bitcoin into a medium of exchange and making it into something that people use. I know it's going to take time, but they are working on the UX for making that possible in as secure a way possible. So have some peace of mind. Check out the Cool Wallet Pro from CoolBix and... Thank you to them for sponsoring this podcast. I am 
wondering how larger node operations with a heavier volume of transactions deal with the channel DB infinitely growing. Obviously, there's compaction offline. But in my case, I'm doing a lot of rebalancing pretty much constantly through the day. And at this point, I have a significant number of settled invoices from that. And if you want to use the UIs, that is getting significantly worse performance. I see that in the next version at LND, they'll have some pagination enabled, which obviously once UI developers add that, that should help. But if there's any other things maybe in the pipeline that anybody knows about. The problem isn't the invoices side of rebalancing. The problem is on the payment side. LND is keeping every history of every failure that you ever see, and it will keep it forever. Even if the payment fails, it will keep that payment around in data, and it will also keep every attempt to achieve that final failure. And that will usually comprise the bulk of your database if you're doing a significant number of payments. And the way that you can deal with that is, number one, there's always been this API call where you can delete all your payments. So you can dump all your payments out to a file or something, delete them all, run the compaction. You probably would see maybe even a 10 times decrease in the amount of database space used, depending on how many payments you've made. And then in later versions of LND, there are other API calls that allow you to delete all the failed payments. Only the payments that succeeded will, will stay in your database. Or there's another flag to allow you to delete all of the attempts that failed. So you were trying to make a payment and it failed this route, it failed this route, it failed this route. And so it will delete those attempts. But like on my nodes, maybe every week or two, I'd run a delete payments, I'd run a compaction. And in addition to the space savings, your node performance can dramatically increase. Like it could be a 10x increase, depending on how fragmented your database is, depending on how much data you've got on there. That makes sense. I noticed that API today and I was going to figure I was going to play around with it because, yeah, my rebalancing performance has dropped like a rock in the past two days. Yeah, if you use my script, you could just do a delete payments history or you can just hit that API call. There's no LNCLI command for it, so you do have to use some tool or use API directly. Wait, what script is that? The balance of Satoshi just has a delete payments history command. Oh, no way. Okay. Man. So let me ask you something, Alex. What are the things that, for those of us who are running or attempting to run <laughs> effective routing nodes, what are the things that you have in your, your cron jobs that basically you would recommend all of us are doing? I know there's Boss Reconnect, which you've been super helpful in explaining. It sounds like Boss Delete Payments. Are there any other things that you currently have running on a, on a cycle? I do dynamic fees. So if there is a scenario where I've identified I need my fees to change based on like my inbound or my outbound or things like that, I have like a cron job to execute this command. And it has a little bit of logic in it, which is if inbound is greater than this, then do that. And then also I run multiple nodes. One thing I've noticed sometimes in people who run multiple nodes that they don't keep the channel between them that is balanced. But that's something you could easily do with a cron job. You just say, send the missing balance over to the other node. And then you can have two nodes act as one node. And a lot of people rolled their own kind of custom scripts for this. Like LMBig has this in their code base. I noticed that Bitfinex used to not do this, and then they switched over to it. They said they had great results with it. And I do like to have multiple nodes. I think multiple nodes is something that has a lot of advantages. I have two routing nodes, and they work a little bit differently, and they have their strengths. Interesting. Also, I just want to give you props, Alex. I don't know how you do it exactly. I feel like you have the, like, the little like time dilation device from Harry Potter. But you respond in approximately 15 seconds to any message that anyone posts in, in the balance of Satoshi's chat. It's quite remarkable. People are 
pretty good about reporting issues. I think it's pretty useful if, if you have people testing things out. A lot of the things that I wouldn't have noticed first, other people are like, if I run this command with this flag, it has an error or something. It's a community project, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Do you, I'm assuming the answer is <laughs> absolutely, but in terms of improving the UX or like adding clarity for things that people are confused about, I'm assuming you appreciate pull requests to the balance of Satoshi's tool. Yeah, definitely. If, if people want to add things. And really, the tool itself is the command line version of different libraries, working on different libraries to help different use cases. If you look at Kaloi Wallet, the power Bitcoin Beach, they're using some of these libraries. So they don't use the balance of Satoshi's tool. They use different libraries that are then you see it on the command line. So that, that's what I'm going for as well as to empower people to make their own stuff using these common libraries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Somebody came off mute. Vivek, I know you had a question a second ago. Do you want to ask it? Yeah, yeah. I was curious if there was any observable difference to routing fees as the mempool has cleared, blocks aren't filling up. I know people FOMO into creating more channels, so I'm assuming that is more competition and less fees. And also, once again, competing with just on-chain transactions. So I was wondering if there was any noticeable effect. I've observed it. It's tough to say what the ultimate cause is because the mempool clearing coincided roughly with the plebnet taking off as well. And But yeah, I've seen massive downward fee pressure over the last month, like four to six weeks in my corner of the world. Now, I, I don't know if you're more established and things like that, you may have seen it less, but it's definitely something I've observed. It's certainly crossed my mind. Of course, there are like fixed minimum costs for maintaining channels, in my view, because at minimum, it's going to be a channel open and a channel close, which there's a fee associated with that. So if you're both opening and closing a channel at one sat per byte, that would be a minimum of 300 sats or just roughly minimum 300 sats per million sats of your channel. If you're only opening 1 million sat channels, just to cover your costs, those should be at 300 ppm at one sat per byte. I see a ton of channels that are lower than that because they think that they're going to get bi-directional traffic, which in my view might be a poor assumption. I think you can get bi-directional traffic, but it is good to start with that fundamental premise. My channels that have been long-lived, like a 16 million channel can easily have a full Bitcoin worth of traffic or even 10 Bitcoins worth of traffic because it's been around for years and it's been used a million times. But the most basic strategy should definitely be like coming up with your cost perspective of how am I going to make my money back? On my note, I'm spending $200 a month on chain fees. So I have to think, I don't want to just waste those Bitcoins. I, I want to make the $200 back plus maybe something for me. And that's how I've always thought about it. Even from the beginning, I set my fees at a pretty high rate compared to the rest of the, the network. And my premise was always like, this isn't going to scale as a charity because we're going to talk about people putting in tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not going to work if everybody just gives away chain fees for free. And people like were very critical of me at that time. They were saying like, oh, why don't you put your fees at zero like everybody else? But now I see some of the bigger players, like even Blockstream and Async. Async has fees of 30 basis points, which are higher than even mine are, like in my direction and to popular destinations. And they have higher fees, like 60 basis points. That's definitely something like think about is approaching it as a business that you're going to have costs and you're going to try to get revenues. Yeah. The other thing is I had an unexpected force close this month and it nearly wiped out all of my earnings for the month just to have one force close. So 
you have to really struggling to find a good mental model on how to price in that risk of forced close. There, there is um, so the, the, even the anchor at, channels update, which would mitigate that cost because instead of having a high commitment fee, you would have a minimum relay fee cost. And then if you only if you need to, you will increase the chain fee. But in practice, if that works out like it's supposed to, you would see at least a 10x decrease in the amount that you would pay, maybe even 100x. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, very excited about the anchor channel. The channels exist now, so like they're the default channel type. But the optimizations to bring those fees down, they haven't been like fully implemented. And if you update to 0.13.1, there is an optimization now where instead of targeting a confirmation of 6, which was hard-coded, it'll target a confirmation of 144, which is still hard-coded. It's going to save you a lot of money. So with a force close on that anchor channel, is there a replace by fee option so that it could be bumped in the future? There's no option, but that's what it is doing. It's doing that automatically. It's saying, I have a certain a deadline that I need to, this to be confirmed within, and I'm going to start low. And then as time goes by, I'm going to keep bumping it up. Oh, that's fantastic. Presumably what you're worried about, Justifer, though, is that your remote party is force closing. Is that right? For this instance, it was my node that made the decision to force close. I haven't dove into the logs to figure out exactly what happened, but it's something that happens when you've got default settings. And as far as the cost goes, it doesn't matter who does the force closing. It's the person who initiated the channel that always pays, even if it's not like your fault that you closed it. You still have to pay the chain fees to claim the funds from the UTXO that's created by the channel close transaction. But yeah, the commitment fees, you don't have to pay, right? Yeah, although the anchor channels also does change that equation a bit because... Now it's whoever wants the channel to close the fastest. They're the ones now responsible for the payment. So it changes the calculus also of accepting channels. Now when you accept a channel, the lion's share of the cost might not be on the person who initiated the channel with you. The lion's share of the cost might actually ultimately be on your side. You need to close and reopen channels to get anchor channels set up. Technically, it might be possible in the future to upgrade them without it because right you, have, you still have a two of two. But right now you need to open new channels if you want the anchor channels. And there's also two versions of Anchor Channels. So if you want the, the real version of Anchor Channels, you need to, yeah, open up new channels. Interesting. Can you expand on real version? If you had Anchor Channels from 0.12.1, would those be real or a, an older version of the Anchor Channel? I think 12.1 was on the spec. There was two iterations. One is like the proposal state of Anchor Channels. So it was implemented in L&D. And then once there was a working implementation, there was back and forth on the mailing list and on the spec about how everybody would implement it. And then that's what's in the current formulation of anchor channels. I think it's probably unlikely that you even have any of the old ones. Yeah, I'm about half uh, traditional channels and half anchor. Yeah, if you made them at 12.1, because 12.1, the anchor channels were almost made default. It was only at the last minute that there was some more changes that we thought should go in to make them default in 0.13. And I assume some of the uh, payment issues in 0.13 have been resolved in 0.13.1? Yeah, yeah. There was problems with key sense in 0.13, and there was problems with just payments that were made on Neutrino, maybe through nodes, I'm not sure. And then even in 13.1, in the early revisions of it, there was problems in regular sense. Hopefully, I haven't heard of anybody reporting any issues, and I've tested myself that the issues that were in 13.0 are resolved in 13.1. So. That should be all fixed up now. Good. I'm going to see if I can get BTC Pay Server to move up to 13.1 here in the near future. Alex, I have a question. I love the run L&D repo that you have, which walks you through basically setting up 
Bitcoin Core and LND with Tor, and then goes through all the specific LND.conf configuration tags, for lack of a better word, that you've implemented. If someone is not yet at the level of being able or feeling comfortable fully rolling their own, is there a specific, not necessarily pre-built, but uh, more pre-built implementation that you prefer in terms of security, usability? Again, this is for someone who is comfortable with the command line, but for whatever reason is not willing to run their own full node. I, I know Start9 has a great product, like Raspberry Blitz, Umbral. Do you have a preferred implementation? I've heard good things about Raspberry Blitz. And also the guide does include instructions for Neutrino. If you want to skip the step where you compile Bitcoin D, you want to skip this block sync, there's the instructions on how to use Neutrino, which I think is can be good if for a node where you're sending, you're not receiving money, there's more limited risk if you're not running a routing node, or if you have your own Neutrino source that you can trust. But yeah, I also think if you are putting a bunch of capital on there and you're trying to run a serious node, it might just be worth investing and some time to learn like how to run Bitcoin D properly because you might run into a situation where you need to fix things and it's going to be ideal if you know how things are working. Yeah, I kind of view a lot of the Node products and obviously like I spend a lot of my day trying to improve them, but I don't see them as serious routers tools. I see them more as tools for individual users who want to get up and running quickly as trust minimized the way as possible. And I think it really does accomplish that well. But I don't think that you're going to be able to be a serious routing node in two years time without being able to roll your own tools or do a lot of your own systems administration, at least a little bit. There can be certain things that automate some of the services and getting them up and and pulling them down. But I think being a lightning routing node, it's like this niche skill that requires technical know-how as well as some sort of financial acumen. Yeah, I don't even think that the barrier is all that high. It's more because I'm, I'm certainly not the world's best sysadmin. I think it's more like getting a handle on how to run commands. Sometimes I look at people who are putting a bunch of money on one of these nodes that isn't really meant for it. And I think you'd really be well served if you just took the basics about how to use a shell and how to set up things properly, because it's not that hard if you just spend some time on it. Alex, are there any soft forks that you're particularly uh, interested in? Any Prevout or CTV? And are there any like swaps that would be enabled? I remember attending your original workshop or whatever, where, or actually it was just the SF Bitcoin devs, where you talked about like tit for tat swaps, HTLC dash swaps, POW swaps. Is there anything new that'd be, I guess, easier to do? Of course, Schnorr. I'm excited about doing key aggregations. Like, that'll be amazing. And Looks like, knock on wood, that that's a software that will be activating. Beyond that, I don't know if people are talking about it so much, but I don't know if any of the existing software proposals cover this, but I don't love the way that our current anchor channels work or the, the, the current way that channel resolution happens, where you have to increase your fee. And people have written papers on this like in hyperbolic terms, like the flood and loot paper. And we have mitigations for that, but I'd like a kind of a software targeted at that, which is we have very high levels of predictability about What's going to happen if I have this unsigned transaction that I'm not going to have to guess the fee correctly. I'm not going to have to compete with people to get the fee that I'm always, it's always going to play out the way that I think it's going to play out. So if we can formulate a software like that and all of the proposals like circle around that issue. So I'm hoping what happens is they coalesce those ideas, just like how Taproot happened. The idea of having the, like the mass functionality was originally proposed as a separate software and people kicked around that idea for a long time and it finally coalesced over many years into the taproot. So I think the same thing would be great for channels and for any kind of swap, any kind of like off-chain protocol. 
you need better finality than just, I'm going to guess a fee that's going to work. Can you explain what kind of soft fork would actually, like, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what consensus change would be needed to be able to predict fees better. You would want something that would make the fees like irrelevant, basically. The fee would just be about the timing of when things would be executed. And if you use like the covenants, some kind of covenant soft fork as an example, you would say, I know that even when this confirms, like it can only go to these people. It's not like I'm racing because the order of events of how things can play out is already set in stone because we pre-committed to it. But like how that actually happens, there's like a, a lot of different ways. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be covenants. And that's like a lot of complexity also that I don't really spend a ton of time on, but it's more of what I want to see. Hey guys, I heard you talking about fees earlier and obviously we know the mempool is a ghost town right now. And as a miner, I came up here to blame you guys for taking away all my fees. But in all seriousness, I actually was wondering if you guys think that the PlebNet and the Rise of the Lightning Network is having a demonstrable, measurable effect on main chain fees, or if it's just a function of the lack of supply or, or demand that's out there for actual on-chain transactions because spot buying is also non-existent, it seems, right now. And also, sorry, it might have something to do with the fact that was it blockchain.com finally implemented SegWit? I'm not sure that can be answered empirically. If you're talking about chain fees, like... Since I started running my routing nodes, I spend way more on chain fees than I ever spend in the past because there's just so much activity happening that I'm, I've gone from occasionally I'm going to spend a chain fee to try out some new service or something to chain fees are now part of my regular operating expenses. And if I need to pay a chain fee, I'm going to have to pay to get in no matter what. So it's a big change to go from paying a dollar a month maybe to $200 a month. And I, I think that like more use is going to have that effect. If people make more services that use these micropayments, people are going to have more reason to open up channels. They're going to have more needs to move liquidity around. And we're going to see chain fees increase. But I don't think also in the current mode that chain fees are materially changed by the traffic of the Lightning Network. I was looking at the submarine swaps. There's a page that lists out every loop that happened. And there's a lot of loops. There's over 10,000. But there's also 50,000 channels. But every block is having 2,000 transactions. So I don't think that's making a big difference either way. Is that a public page, Alex? Yeah, I think it's loop.lightningporter.net or something like that. And it, it just lists every single submarine swap that it could detect just by looking at the on-chain signature of those swaps. Fantastic. You really don't know what's happening on the Lightning Network. Even an individual routing node wouldn't be able to speak for the whole thing. Although personally, I see plenty of routing activity and... I'm looking forward to seeing more. If we're going to bring 6 million people onto the Lightning Network in the next couple of months, the next year, it still needs to grow pretty significantly. So we've got a lot of work ahead to build out all the infrastructure and get the tools ready to get folks to allocate their resources or their sats in a smart way so that they're efficient. And yeah, I think at this point, it's a lot of trial and error. But with all the tools coming out of the folks on stage, um, very excited about the future of it. I have a quick question. There's a I forget what the name of the website is, but it's gosh, I can look it up. But it's basically it's like TX something TX insights or something like that. And it basically scans the blockchain for lightning channel opens that are public to determine the total liquidity in the lightning network. Isn't that also possible as of right now before Taproot and Schnorr get implemented? to do for private channels? Couldn't you scan the network in the same way and get an accurate measure of the total liquidity that's locked up in the Lightning Network? You'd be making some assumptions about some of the script types. And so you can try to run that analysis. But as of right now, channel types are pay-to-witness script hash, usually the Betch32 version. 
And so you can try to make the assumption that like, okay, any payment to a witness script hash has the possibility of being to the Lightning Network, but any advanced multi-sig setup is going to look the same, at least until it's closed. Yeah, people have run the analysis on closed channels to get an upper bound, and that's been done before. I think the analysis was actually that there are very few public channels, comparatively, at least few of them that are closing. Apologies, and like, my, and similarly, like, my Twitter app know, crashed. Can you just repeat the last sentence that you said? Like the analysis of the two of two closes on chain, or two of two spends on chain, revealed that by far and away the most common use to closes are publicly identifiable channels, like channels that you could see, like the outpoint was listed in the graph. So that's saying not that many people are using a native SegWit two of two, and it's also saying not that many people are using private channels. Got it. I guess the question, because in the anonymity set, you need to know, you don't know that it's two of two until the witness is provided. So the real question is, can you, what the broader use of pay to witness script hashes in general, separately from lightning channels, because then you can just count the number of outputs there and then try to make heads or tails of it. Interesting. And of course, with Taproot, assuming things are cooperative, all this goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you're really talking about like the Schnorr key aggregation because it will make the, instead of having two of two keys, so you'll just have one key. So you'll save money and it'll be more private. I, I think that, that will definitely help, although you'll have a, another impact, which is like how many people are using Taproot to make sense, period. It could be that if Lightning is the main first adopter, that you can just add up all of the Taproot outputs. And now you almost have less privacy because you can use that as upper bound, how much money was sent to the Taproot outputs. Are Taproot-enabled channels something people are playing with in, like, Signet yet, or is that still too early? I don't think any of those kind of things exist. I haven't even seen very many Taproot, like, demos, period. There are some Taproot outputs, I think, in Signet, but they're very few. And in order to get them into a channel relationship, we would probably need at least a proposal for a spec change because it meaningfully impacts the structure of the transactions themselves. So pretty much all of Bolt 3. I don't know if the revocation mechanic will work the same as it does. So there's a lot of changes to be made to the Lightning protocol itself before it's actually usable, even in a demo sense. Okay, here's a question. What are each of you the most interested in on a time scale of, let's say, 30 to 60 days? Like what development that is related to the Lightning Network or something that you are personally working on is the most exciting to you in terms of helping to improve the Lightning Network? Let's start with that with you, Sever. I'm currently working on a tool that tries to estimate the health of a node. The idea is still fluid, so uh, it changes a lot. But to really say this is a good node to connect to, or this is a bad note to connect to. In the future, this might include uptime or whatever, but this is the general direction. But I'm still digging into data, how I can do that, and stuff like this. Got it. All right. Hello, Jessica. Your turn. Speak. Personally, I'm interested in trying to automate the rebalancing process because I've found success with active rebalancing, but it requires far too much labor at the moment. I'm actively working on trying to improve that and also potentially analyzing some of the HTLC event data to maybe see if I'm missing opportunities due to fee structure. Yeah, I got to say, that's the thing for me right now that is the most interesting, is being able to determine which channels are receiving the most failed payments so that I can change max HTLC sizes, close channels out, uh, things like that. 
the HTLC event stream. Alex, what about you? I think the most dynamic in the 30-day, 60-day timeframe is the the groups, the like group channel opening. I want to explore that myself. I've been thinking a lot about it. And I think it's like a new use case for Lightning because it isn't so focused on, I want to make payments cheaper. It isn't so focused on, I want to receive payments or I want to make a specific app. It's more like a social experience. It's more, I want to take part in this peer-to-peer network. So I think it's been underserved because we've been focusing so much on like the nuts and bolts of making things efficient and making things work for businesses that we haven't worked so much on the like peer-to-peer side of things. Yeah. Oh, man. So this is one of my other like current passions is that like we've all been building out PlebNet for that reason. And like I've been working with Lamar, who's in the audience, I'm not sure if he still is, who's basically... He's doing that for, uh, he runs the Black Bitcoin Billionaires Club on Clubhouse. And he's, they've been building out a community of Lightning nodes that are, in, uh, that are in their community. I think that kind of model, like these small communities, groups of friends, large communities, all getting onboarded and onboarding themselves and each other to Lightning Network is going to be the, the future of Lightning adoption. And there aren't any tools that I'm aware of that what you just described in terms of tools that, that facilitate opening you know, trustless, balanced channels among groups, but also that allow a group of people to strategically determine the best channels to open in order to both strengthen the, the routing within a group and then also to benefit the larger Lightning Network. Like I want to see something where I can take the output of Cheese Robot, which is an incredible tool, and we all it's the background for all the stuff that's happening within Telegram because it allows us to like gamify and really have fun with the size of the graph. I want to be able to take something like that and then plug that into a third-party tool or a website or just something I'm running that I clone down from GitHub and then get a dynamic readout of metrics that are for that entire group rather than just me as an individual node. I think that'd be really powerful. Yeah, I think that segues into what I'm working on right now, which is primarily doing more in-depth yield analysis on the different channels. Because unlike various lighting channels, despite the fact that they give you revenues and stuff like that, they're not fixed income instruments. Your liquidity is being continuously reallocated from your destination to your source in any given moment. And so understanding what the actual sort of time-based ROIs of having channel uh, allocations in any given place I think is going to be really important to be able to make good decisions about, especially if you're capital bound, right? If you can continuously add capital, maybe this doesn't matter as much, but you always want to be closing your least profitable channels to do your forward experiments with, as opposed to your most profitable ones. But there are naive ways to understand that. And I think actually human intuition, as long as your data set is small, is actually pretty good approximation here. But especially as your channel counts grow and your payment flows are growing, having tools to be able to say definitively that on a per unit time basis, this is your least profitable channel, close it, and then experiment with moving it, the capital there elsewhere. Yes. Okay. That's a huge thing. And have you played around with the Python scripts that Grid, I'm sure you actually probably have more nuanced tools you're using yourself, but the uh, the Python scripts that Gridflare has built out? Because I found those incredibly helpful in that regard. Yeah, I've played with them. I haven't really done it enough to really have an assessment of whether or not it's materially helped me or not. And I honestly haven't given all of them quote unquote fair shake. Not that I have anything against them. I just haven't had time. I've been working on some of my own stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just, I only mention them because, and of course, again, centrality is not the only factor. And I think that the type of analysis you're talking about, the more nuanced analysis, that's really the goal. But for me to be able to basically run an analysis on all of my channels and then have it spit back, this channel has never been used. This channel is only routing a small amount of payments and then basically have the metrics right next to it that are like, 
here is how your centrality score will be affected if you remove this channel. Again, that's only one factor, but that kind of strategic analysis, I think, is sorely needed and sounds amazing. If you want any any beta testers, or to, you know where to ask. Yeah, one of the things, like, for the benefit of the audience, what Philip's talking about is that there's a person in the Clubnet community named Gridflare that put together some scripts that did an analysis of the channel graph to figure out what some of the best nodes to connect to were to improve your betweenness or centrality score with respect to the graph topology. And it's definitely an interesting thing. It's, a, it's well studied with respect to like graph theory. But I think one of the observations that was made by the Lightning Labs team in the form of the Lightning Pool product is that the graph is devoid of economic information. You don't really have a great idea of what the demand for payment flows are just by looking at the channel graph. And so you set yourself up for having some of these scripts that improve your centrality, set you up from a topology perspective to have the opportunity to route certain payments, but it doesn't necessarily mean that any of the payment demands for those routes exist. And these tools all have to be used in conjunction with one another. Otherwise, you're not going to get a complete view of what the right approach is. Beautifully put. Justifer, what on a 30 to 60 day timescale are you most excited? Yeah, this is probably going to be the last thing that I'll say. I got to run after this, but thank you so much, Bitcoin Magazine and Pete, for having me on. I think as far as developments coming up, I'm most excited about the bottom-up growth. Things like PlebNet popping up because it's been a real gift and excitement as all these people are joining the Lightning Network. And one thing that I've noticed is that it is a, a one-way trip. It's like a second orange pill that you take to be on the Lightning Network because once you start, you don't really want to stop because the incentives are aligned. It's exciting. It's a social network and it's growing rapidly. So I think I'm most excited about people discovering this technology as we are undercutting all the other payment rails out there. A stat that I like to consider is that at 300 ppm, you're underpricing Visa by about 43 times. So as people discover this technology, I think they'll see some real opportunities and people will be inspired to build on it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. And I'm going to be doing these twice a week generally. I think we're going to have another one on Thursday at the same time. Please feel free to jump back in. This has been awesome. Thanks so Absolutely, much. Man. The last thing I'll say is one of the things that has been so interesting to me is, as I said, I, I've had a Lightning Node for a while. And it wasn't until we, we started building out PlebNet that, which is to say, like a bunch of us learning together, that it became really fun. And not only are the incentives and really interesting, which is that as you benefit yourself, you are benefiting the larger network. And then when you're part of this community of friends, you get these kind of group incentives where previously my experience in the Lightning Network has been that people discover these interesting ways to extract more economic value and they keep it to themselves because that provides, there's, a, there's edge that you get by doing that. But when you're in these communities of friends and it's super fun, you tend to be more willing to share some of this information because you benefit as you share things, like we're seeing like the Plugin Advanced channel, you get input from people that have different perspectives than you do, and you learn more and more. And I think that's all just built on top of the incentive structures that are put in place by Bitcoin as a layer one, and then Lightning as a layer two. And that, to me, is the most compelling thing about Bitcoin and Lightning. And then lastly, I just want to say, for people that are feeling like, oh man, this seems like it'd be super boring, I got to say, like, Managing my routing node is more compelling and more fun than like any real-time strategy game I've played because it's, there's like real money involved. There's real sats. The decisions you make affect your, your income in, the, in this way. And it's just, it's very fun. It's addicting. 
But anything else anybody else wants to say or a rep before I close out the room? Just thanks for having us. I man. just want, yeah. Also on my side, just thanks for having us. It was a really good conversation we had here on with some really good people. And I'm looking forward to continually be part of this community to talk to a lot of people to improve the Lightning Network and the experience we have and all the people have. Absolutely.